Would you please, brothers and sisters, open your Bibles and find your way to the book of Hebrews. We are going to be in the book of Hebrews this morning. Specifically, we will be in the 10th chapter of the book of Hebrews. So find your way to the book of Hebrews. And as you turn to the book of Hebrews, I, I, I want to give you some context so that you're, you're, you're able to jump into this section of Scripture this morning. Let me give you some context. This book, the book of Hebrews, is a first century book or letter that was written to a group of ancient Jewish people who were facing the temptation to give up on the church. They were facing the temptation to give up. This is the first century. It's the early church, so it's at the very beginning of things. And at the very beginning is when you don't want to give up, but they were facing the temptation to give up on church. They were facing the temptation to give up on their faith. They were facing the temptation to just walk away from it all, their, 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 their faith, their congregation, to just walk away from it all. You see, these, these, the, the original audience here, these, these folks who first received this letter that we're studying today, they were facing all sorts of pressures that were whirling around them. They were facing ethnic and cultural pressures. They were facing economic pressures. They were facing spiritual pressures and philosophical pressures. Ethnically and culturally, at the time of the first century, there were all sorts of tensions swirling around the ancient Holy Land, in particular in the city of Jerusalem. It was a place that gathered people from all around the world, and those people brought with them their ethnic and class issues that really began to hit head around the first century and even before that. It was a place of conflict. And here you have this community known as the Church of Jesus. The church, it's the first century. The church is, 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 it was, was born, it's in its infant stage, and the church was a place that was welcoming everyone in. And so you had people who otherwise would have been at one another's throats are getting saved and coming into the church. And so they're bringing those pressures in, in particular the ethnic groups of the Jews and the Gentiles. And so, so in the culture, Jews and Gentiles, they, they particularly don't get along, but then now they're being swept into the church. And there's conflict, there's, there's tension with regard to the increase, really, of the Gentiles in the community. You see, the early church met in synagogues. They, they were largely Jewish, but more and more you have these non-Jewish people who are coming in, and it was creating a bunch of conflict. In particular, for Jewish people, they have this conflict with regard to the claim that the Jewish Messiah had come. This guy, Yeshua, Jesus of Nazareth, is, is the Messiah. And that was a bold claim at the time, but in particular, as these Gentiles are coming in, if you're a Jewish person from a Jewish family in a Jewish community and you're saying the Messiah has come, but your community, your family is seeing you hang out with all of these Gentiles, they're going, really, really, is, is that what this church thing is? Because it, it sure looks like you're hanging out with the people who hate us. And so then comes the pressure to walk away from the church because those people in your church community don't get along with your people in your family community and so you have this pressure to walk away. Economically, you have pressures because of your faith. We, we see in ancient history that you know, people struggled. People might not patron your business because you're, you're one of those people, those followers of Yeshua who hang out with those Gentiles. I, I'm not going to buy from your store. I'm not going to give your kid a job. So there's economic pressure. There's ethnic pressure. There's, there's spiritual pressure. What about this claim of the Messiah? I, I don't know. I don't know about that claim. Do you have proof? Can you, can you prove this? And you begin to get tired. I'm, I have to argue. I have to prove. My family doesn't think I'm Jewish anymore. And, I, and you know, my Gentile friends, they don't understand me. I'm, I'm just going to give up on this. There's philosophical challenges. I mean, this is a major city, Jerusalem. You've got, you know, it's a college town, you might say. There's, you know, all sorts of ideas and philosophies from the Greeks and from the Romans. And they have all sorts of ideas about this stuff. And so you're just constantly getting peppered. You're constantly in a place where you have to defend what you believe. And, and, and it gets tiring. There's all these pressures. And Jerusalem, I mean, the physical location, this is a... This is a hard place to live. This is a hard city to live in. Jerusalem itself is, a, is an occupied city. It's an occupied land. 
And so for Jewish people, the book is Hebrews, so you've got to know some stuff about Hebrews if you're going to get the book. For Hebrews living in Jerusalem, an occupied place, that's really hard. You know, when a land is occupied, that is to say it has been invaded. It's been taken over by a foreign power. I think about World War II, right? We, in World War II, we would talk about German-occupied France, for example. So this is an occupied place. And so from that Jewish context, you've got these Gentiles who have taken your land, but, you know, they, 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 they let you have a temple, they let you have some schools, they, you know, they let you be, but you still feel the presence. They're, they're officers, they're police, they're soldiers, right? They're still there reminding you, you get out of line, don't mess with us, because we control your land. And then you go to church on Sunday, and you have those people in your church. And it gets tiring. You go, I, I don't, I don't want to do this anymore. I want to I give up on this. I, I just want to leave Jerusalem altogether. It's just too hard. It's too expensive. There's so much conflict. I, I, you know, I don't think we're ever going to get off the ground. It's really hard to raise a family here. It's a tough city. It's, they're, they're facing tough times. They have all of these pressures, okay? Now, it was very important for them to not give up. So this letter is really important. This letter is being written to them to say, don't give up, don't walk away. Because the early church in Jerusalem, that was, that was the headquarters of the operation. From there, they would go from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth. The gospel would spread. That, those, those headquarters there, those early church communities in that city were important. As we, as we study ancient history and ethnography and, and, and we look at the way the gospel spread out, those urban centers, those cities were really important for the spread of the gospel. And so, so, so it was important that they, that they don't walk away. And the author to this book is pleading with them and reasoning with them, saying, look, 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 don't walk away. I know you're discouraged. I know you're downtrodden. I know you're divided. Don't walk away. All of this is to give you context so that as we read the text, you go, oh, okay, I see what he's doing here. This is all prolegomenon. This is all just introductory to situate us to the text. Now, in our contemporary setting, as we're you know, going in between the ancient world and our contemporary setting, I mean, a lot of these things are very relevant to us. There's discouragement. There's divides in our culture. Many are downtrodden. Feelings of discouragement, uh, downtroddenness, divide. Darkness, those, those are all really, you know, relevant things for us today, wouldn't you say? I mean, there's, there's people who are giving up. There's people who, who are facing these pressures even still today. And, 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 and we'll look back and, and we'll see, you know, in a few years, hopefully, we'll look back and we'll see, wow, that was, you know, that was 2020, that was crazy. You know, or 2021, that was crazy. Uh, you know, they say hindsight is 2020. Uh, but that whole saying is just ruined, right? You know, it's like, yeah, that's horrible. Uh, 2020, 2021, discouragement, divide, downtroddenness. Those are all relevant things. But as you study human history, you see that what we're going through in these times are common to all times. Political unrest, racial unrest, drama, darkness. Every generation has this. Every century has this. And life goes on. With this comes, though, these real feelings, the real human phenomenon of, of wanting to give up at times or feeling discouraged or just feeling down or feeling alone and feeling like others you love don't understand you. It's a real phenomenon that's been going on since the early church, as we see in this book, since the days of Jesus, since the days of David, since the days of Moses, since the days of Abram, since the days of Noah. I mean, the phenomenon itself is older than Methuselah, this phenomenon of discouragement and divides and darkness, the phenomenon in particular of how those things going on in the world have a way of coming into the community of God's people. And, 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 and as God's people who regularly is called to meet, it means we have to be ready to be real about those things and we have to be ready to press in and cry out to God and say, oh God, change us so that we don't look like the world so that we can be the, the, the light on a hill, the city on a hill, so that we can be that salt that you have ordained us to be, and that we would come 
to one another and that we would come before this God and we would seek Him in repentance and faith for these things. The book of Hebrews is calling the people to this. Repentance and faith. The book of Hebrews is calling the people to warn them of sin and the, the power of sin to ruin individuals and to ripple into communities, bringing this discouragement and divide and even worse, death. Death. And with the word of divide and darkness and death, we need to have the sobering wake-up call of the book of Hebrews. We need to hear not just the sobering wake-up call, but we need to hear of the Savior who has come to choke death itself and to breathe life into us, His people, that, that we would forever be changed by Him, that we would be marked by Him, this, this Almighty Savior who has come, this Almighty God who reigns over creation, the God who is Father, Son, and Spirit, that Father who would send His Son, that Son who would become a man, that man that we know as Yeshua, Jesus, the man from Nazareth, the man of history. But again, He's not just a man of history. He's God of eternity, the eternal Son in the flesh. Not just any old God, the God who's Father, Son, and Spirit. Not just any old flesh. His flesh is Hebrew flesh. His flesh is Jewish flesh. He is the son of Abram. He is the son of Adam. He's a man, but he's the son of Abram. He has stepped into this Jewish world in Jewish flesh embodied in this Jewish town that's occupied, Jerusalem. And he carries men and women with him in his life, and he walks them through discouragement. And he gives them this message of the gospel that does more than free you from discouragement. It frees you from the penalty of sin and death itself. And he calls them, you continue this work. And you go from Jerusalem to Judea, to Samaria, to the ends of the earth with this message. And you make disciples. And you train them to walk through the darkness. You train them to walk through the valley of the shadow of death. And you point them to the green pastures on high where I will come and I will gather my people. Church, he's coming again. A man in the flesh. Not just any old flesh, Jewish flesh. Not just any old God, the God who's Father, Son, and Spirit. We need to hear Him proclaimed. We've gathered to hear Him proclaimed. That is what this book, the book of Hebrews, does. It proclaims Him. In fact, every book of the Bible, we've got 66 books inside of this one book we call the Bible. All 66 of the books of the Bible, that's what they do. They proclaim Him. They point us to Him. It calls out to the discouraged and the divided and the the downtrodden and, and those who want to walk away. No, no, you don't walk away. You come. Hear the Savior call. Hear the shepherd. Come, come, you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Hold on, he says. Hold on. There's hope for the hurting. There is a balm in Gilead. You've heard the song? There is a balm in Gilead to make the wounded whole. There is a balm in Gilead to heal the sin-sick soul. And this healing comes from this one, the Christ. Okay, so Hebrews, we've got some context. Chapter 10, in this section from chapter 7 up to chapter 10, it's a section where the author is, he's, he, he's showing the audience Christ. Hold on, come to Christ. Here's Christ. And, and, and in section, this section here from chapter 7 up to chapter 7, 10, as he's talking about Christ, he's showing the superiority of Christ. Specifically, the superiority of the priesthood of the Christ. So chapters uh, 7 through 10, if you're taking notes, you can write down this is a section about the superiority of the priesthood of Christ. And through, throughout the book of Hebrews, actually, the author is really uh, talking a lot about the superiority of Christ. He's, he's saying, Jesus is better than that. Jesus is better than that. Jesus is better than that. Well, is he better than this? Oh, yeah, he's better than that, too. The, the author to the book of Hebrews just keeps talking about how Jesus is better. Jesus is more important. He's more important than your priests. He's more important than Jerusalem. He's more important than Moses. He's more important than David. He's more important than angels. He's more important than the temple. You get the idea. Now, you know, those things are good things. David, check, good. Moses, good. Temple, good. Jerusalem, good. Angels, good. Those are good things. He's infinitely mo' better. 
he's, he's just better. He's superior. You think those things are good? Oh, man, you, you haven't seen Jesus. You think this is important? You think that's important? You, you, you haven't seen Jesus. Hebrews chapter 7 through chapter 10, that's what he's doing. He's talking about, man, look at, look at Jesus is better. You think the priests, you think they're a big deal? Now, the priests were a big deal in their culture. The priests, as I said a moment ago, they're, they're good. The, the priests serve a, a purpose in their culture, a purpose in their society. The priests, they look after people, and they, and they bring the people to God, and, and the priests are, you know, noble people, and, and, and you look up to them, and, and they're good, but Jesus is better. They don't compare to him. They don't come close to him. Hebrews chapter 7 through chapter 10. He's better. He's superior. Now, he's not better. He's not more good. He, he, he's not superior for superior's sake. The reason why he is superior, the reason why he is more good, is because he fulfills all of those things. So, so again, nothing's wrong with the priest. Nothing's wrong with the temple. Nothing's wrong with David or Moses or the law. Nothing's wrong, certainly not, with the covenants of God. Those are good things. But they were all pointing to something else. And that something else that they were all pointing to had come. He is the fulfillment, the fulfillment in the flesh. It would be like going to a nice restaurant. And, and you know, a nice restaurant. And you remember those, right? We used to go to restaurants. But, you know, they're, they're opening up and whatever, and you can brave the mask. But you go to a nice restaurant, and, 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 and you look at the menu, and, and, you know, your, your, your brain starts firing. Well, what do I want to eat? Oh, that looks really good. And you start looking at other people. What's, what does he have over there? You know, what's on, you know, what are the specials? You know, maybe the stuff not even on the menu. But then you're looking at the menu and you go, that's what I want. That's going to be really good. And you, and you tell the waiter, I'll, I will have that. I will have that right there. And then the waiter comes and he brings you the food. Now, follow the illustration. It would be like once the food has been brought to you, for you to keep looking at the menu. Your food has been brought to you. Why are you looking at the pictures in the menu? The food is right in front of you. So, too, the priests, oh, they're, you know, they're good. The, 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 the temple, good. Jerusalem, good. The covenant's good. The law, good. All of it's good, but that's just the menu. It has come. He's better. He's, he's the real thing, right? Why, why would, would, would someone order something good, and then when the food comes, instead of enjoying it, just keep looking at the menu? That, that, that's crazy. Now, this illustration of the menu and food uh, comes to my mind, and even our study in this passage today comes to mind, because this was a very special week uh, for uh, our pastors in this church, uh, the members of the Delray Church board, uh, some, some men in this church, we, we celebrated one of our pastor's uh, eldest son, Noah. Uh, he's going off to college. He's here today, and we can all embarrass him. Yay, come up here and sing a song. You know? um, he's sitting back there. I know he doesn't want to be embarrassing uh, him too much, but, you know, anyway, I'm going to put this picture up uh, of him. Um, so so P Pastor Tony, Noah's dad, said, and, and, and kind of orchestrated to get some, some godly men uh, that, that have been a part of, of, of his life and in different capacities. Um, you, you know, Ryan at youth group, you know, Tyson at youth group, and, you know, um, me and Mike just being around the church and whatever. And, and, and let's get together and let's celebrate him because he's going off to college in a couple of days. This will be his last Sunday. He's going off to college. And, and, and let's, as, as older men, let's pour some stuff into him. You know, like, so we, we each sort of tackle different topics of, of, of things that are important in walking with God. And, and Pastor Tony said, you know, we're not going to, you know, shakies. <laughs> you know, we're not doing mojo potatoes. Those are delicious. Fried chicken, that's delicious. Mojo potatoes. But we're going to Fleming's. And, and, and Pastor Tony said, order whatever you want. I'm serious, you guys. Order whatever you want. You know, and we're looking at the menu like, is he for real? <laughs> you know? <laughs> Some, some, some guys who, you know, don't get out much, they're like, oh, shoot, look at how much that is. You know, can we really do that? Mike Dolan's back there like, I'll take two tomahawks and a lobster tail. Um, bring me your finest ale. 
order whatever you want. We're looking at that menu. Oh, man, you know, the food comes, and I was just so excited. And I was thinking about the text of Hebrews because in, in the time that was allotted to me to share, we, we just went around and shared with him, you're going off to college, you know, here's some things to look out for, whatever. You know, watch out for this, watch out for that, you know, college or whatever. You know, what I wanted to share with him and what I want to share with you this morning is a lesson that comes from this text that we're in this morning, Hebrews. Because he, he charges them in the face of all the pressures. And college is kind of a pressure cooker and you've got different things going on. But he, he challenges them with the final point that I'll have on, on, on the outline. He challenges them to be a part of the church. That, you know, and that's, that, that, that's a temptation when you go off to college, in particular for a young man, a young woman, or whatever. Mom and dad wake you up on Sunday. Get up. Go, you, you get in the car. Let's go. You're coming to church. You live under this roof. You're going to church. But now you go off to college, you know, I might try to sleep in or something, you know. And I want to charge Noah and say, man, don't sleep in. I want to charge you all Sunday sacred, Sunday special. And God does something special here. Okay, God does something special here. And the meal has come. Christ. He's better, he's better than everything. There's nothing, there's nothing that compares to what we're doing this morning right here. All, all the things that vie for our attention, there's, there's nothing better. Here it is, enjoy being together with God's people, enjoy hearing him proclaimed. Now, we've got to keep in mind this context, so, so we've got to keep in mind the pressures that I was talking about. We've got to keep in mind that it's not as easy as being at Fleming's and they bring you a tomahawk and, you, of course, I'm not looking at the menu. Give me that tomahawk and you're just eating it and you're just having a good time because, again, the context, there's conflict. So for, that, for the Hebrews, book of Hebrews, for the Jewish people, it's not as easy as enjoying a tomahawk. It's not, it's not as easy because as soon as you start to eat that tomahawk, you're going to have someone behind you. Maybe the, maybe the waiter spit on the tomahawk. Maybe, maybe the chef in the back sprinkled a little cyanide on that tomahawk or whatever. There's conflict. People are dying for their faith in the first century. So the illustration makes a point to say, hey, look, Jesus is better. He fulfills all of this. He's the one who has come. But you still have to understand in the Hebrews' context, that still had to be fleshed out. Right? That, that was still a hard thing. Oh, this is going to be good. I'm going to enjoy this. This is going to be good. But enjoying that delicious meal is going to have discouragement too. It's going to have hard times with it because darkness is going to come. Even, the, even this exciting thing that we were doing and guys are sharing and tearing up and stuff. Other guys are saying, I'm just, you know, it was emotional just thinking about, man, no, he's been so little. Now he's going away and guys are sharing. It's just a special moment. Well, other people didn't get the, the, the memo on it. My phone's lighting up with all kinds of discouragement of stuff that's going on. Uh, you, oh, man, you've got to be kidding me. Oh, wait, someone posted that. Oh, wow. Ooh, uh, you know, think, discouragement's going to come. It's always going to be there. Now, what matters is what we do with it. And so for the Hebrews, he's saying, I know, I know what you're facing. Let me encourage you by telling you about our perfect high priest, Jesus. And that is the title of this morning's message, Our Perfect High Priest. And I've been sharing with you some prolegomenon so that as we get into the text, it, it lights up because you have all of this context. You have all this prolegomenon. And so now as we're stepping into it, you go, okay, okay, Jesus is better. He's been talking about that. The tensions in Jerusalem, Jews, Gentiles, all that stuff. People dying, people wanting to walk away, people wanting to leave the city. The city's too hard. Now the priests, talked about them, the Kohanim, or the Kohen, that's the singular way of saying the Kohanim, the priests, they're, they're a big deal. You have to know a little bit about the priests. We're going to read verse 11 in just a moment, and it starts talking about priests. Look at verse 11. It says every priest, the Kohen, the Kohen, are, the Kohanim, are the descendants of, of Aaron. Eharon, they're the Aaronites, the Aaronic priesthood. Eharon is the brother of Moses. The Levitical priesthood comes through Eharon. As we say, Aaron. Uh, but Eharon, the line comes through him. The Levitical, Levitical priests. Okay? The Levitical, that word comes from the Jewish family tribe of Levi. As we say, Levitical. They're from Levi. 
Levi was the third son of Jacob and Leah. His descendants are the Levites. Now from the Levites come the Levitical priesthood. Not every Levite was a priest, but every priest is a Levite. It is a calling for their family. You, you, guys, you, you know what it is to have a family business. We have uh, guys here who run their own businesses. They have a family business. This is our family business. Well, for Levi's kids, the family business is the Levitical priesthood. You have a calling to be priests. Not everyone's going to become a priest, but every, but every priest has to be from this line. It's a special family business. It's a special calling. Okay, look at the text. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 11. Every priest, we're reading about the special calling that they have. Every priest stands daily ministering and offering uh, uh, time after time the same sacrifices. They, the, the priests have this duty in Jerusalem, in the temple, of offering these sacrifices. Time after time, they're offering these sacrifices. This is their work. This is their calling. Now, now, now he goes on to say, look at the last clause of verse 11, which can never take away sins. So it's a frustrating job being involved in this uh, ritual because it's not accomplishing anything. It's not actually, you know, like taking away their sins or whatever, but it's this picture that's pointing to something. And I've already, you know, spoiler alert, shared with you what it's pointing to. It's pointing to Christ. So, so the priests are doing something that's pointing the people to something. And, and this is their work, and they're doing it all day. The, the, the priests were ministers, and their ministry was reconciliation. And what they're doing with these sacrifices, it, it, they're symbolically standing between God and humanity, mediating. They have a ministry of mediation. Now, you, you hear the word mediation. Mediation is what? It's an impartial third party who assists two parties that are having a dispute. You know, a marriage or some, a business or whatever is falling apart, right? And we're at odds, and then you get a mediator who comes to work with this. The priests are mediators. The two parties are humanity and God. Humanity is in a dispute with God because humanity has sinned against God. And the priests, their role in this conflict is to, to mediate. The priests mediate these sacrifices, that are symbols to direct us, the offending party, to see our need of a payment for what we have done. When you take something, there's a cost. When you break something, there's a cost. When you cross a line, there's a cost. Well, we've crossed a line with God, there's a cost in this. What, what, what do we do? The mediator comes and you see sacrifice. I don't, I don't, I don't like that. Something's dying. I don't, I don't like that. Yeah, that, that should be you. That should be you dying. You've rebelled against the one who was giving you life. That's how death comes. You see this? You see this picture? Oh, man, I don't like this picture. It's a picture of payment. The next point on your outline. Every priest stands daily ministering and offering these sacrifices that can't take away sin to teach us that our sin requires a payment. When the temple stood in Jerusalem, the priests would do their mediating work. The priests would, would call the worshipers. The, the, the Levites, who weren't priests, would be there kind of as priest assistants. You know, I'm not a priest, I'm just a Levite, I'm just doing my part. You might stand outside of the temple as people are coming up to the temple, and you, you greet people, you read scripture to people. You're a Levite, so you're assisting, and you're, you're getting them ready. Outside of the temple, there are baptismal pools, what are called mikvaot, and, 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 and so the assistants would even stand outside there and, and wash people. People would get washed because you don't want to go into the temple dirty, unclean, and so the, the sacrifice isn't the only mediating symbol. There's also the washing of the mikvaot, and so, so you get washed, you go into these pools of water, and then you enter into the temple. You're all wet, but you're clean, and you're getting ready, and you're coming to God, and in the temple, there's, there's sacrifice in there. And that sacrifice is going on all day long. The text says, time after time, time after time, in the book of Exodus, chapter 29, verse 38, I'll put it in front of you. We read this instruction about sacrifice. And you see Exodus 29, verse, verse 38, what does it say? Each day, continually. Those, those, those priests had a hard job. I'm, I'm city folk. You know, I, I, I go to the store, I don't have to think about, you know, I don't, I don't have to think about it. 
Now, I come from a family that's country folk, and when the city folk go to see the family back in Oklahoma or wherever, they're like, hey, let's have some chicken. They literally are going to get one from the backyard <laughs> and traumatize the city folk. We, we don't have to think about where the food comes from or a thing dying or have to watch it or anything. You're a priest all day long taking life out of animals. Not just animal, not just the animal kingdom, but, but the plant kingdom as well. They offer grain sacrifices. It's a, it's a, a, a mediation of death. It's a, it's a killer job, pun intended. So you're just there. You're just there all day, continuously. Why does it have to be continuous, Pastor Matt? I'm glad you asked. Because sin is continuous. It doesn't stop. Sin is relentless. It doesn't stop. You ever tell yourself, I'm not going to do that sin again? How'd that go? Right? You did it again. It's continuous. The priests themselves have to go through the ritual as they prepare themselves to go to the temple. They've got to get washed. They've got to put on a special outfit, special priestly garments and stuff like this. They've got to cleanse themselves, and then they go in to give us symbols for cleansing us. And, you know, and, and just when you think, you know, no, you've got to do it again, you've got to do it again, because sin's continuous. And furthermore, why, why do you have to do it continuously? Because God is an everlasting God, and a sin against an everlasting being is an everlasting offense. And so so, so you, you go every day, and this is going on every day, and then on top of the every day, they have special holidays. In fact, there's these pilgrimage festivals known as the Shalash Ralagim. Three specific Shalash Ralagim, these festivals where it, you don't live in Jerusalem, but you come into Jerusalem for Shalash Ralagim. Everyone has to come to town. Everyone comes to town and goes to the temple. Everyone goes and sacrifice. Three Shalash Ralagim. Pesah, or what we call Passover. Shavuot, or what we call the Feast of Pentecost, or the Feast of Weeks. And Sukkot, what we call the Feast of Tabernacles, or Tents, or Booths. You come to town in Shalash Relagim. People, Jewish people from all around that ancient world, you, you come to town. It's like our holidays. They set a rhythm to the year. You know, you know, Halloween's coming. People, people are thinking about their outfits and whatever. Um, you know, if we get to do that, we'll wait for uh, uh, daddy government to tell us what we get to do. But, you know, you're thinking about, well, I'm going to dress up. I'm going to do this. Thanksgiving's coming. You know, where are we going to go? What are we going to do? Christmas is coming, right? So you, we, we have our, our holidays. We understand. We, you know, the stores fill up with stuff. The pumpkin spice starts coming. It smells like November, you know. It smells like Pesach. It smells like Shavuot. It smells like Sukkot. It's Shalash Relo game time. Family, pack it up. Pack it up. Let's go. We are going to the temple. And there's the priest. All day, and then there's holidays, and you don't get time off. You just get some extra stuff you got to kill. Yom Kippur. Yom is the Hebrew word for day. Kippur. Kippur is the word for atonement. The day of atonement, this holy day where, where everyone comes. In Leviticus 16, the, the atonement begins with Aharon, Aaron. And Aharon gets all washed up. He goes through the mikvah. He gets all washed up. He, he puts on his priestly garments. And they kill a bull. A bull. A big old bull. And he kills that big old bull at Haron, the, the high priest. He kills a bull just for purposes of mediating his own sin and the sin of his family. And the blood of the bull is then brought to the temple, to the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant is in the Holy of Holies, and he sprinkles that, that blood from that bull on that Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies. I want to give you a picture of it, uh, lest you don't know your uh, uh, Bible temple topography well. Here's a picture of it, so you can see. You go, go in there, the priest goes in there, into the Holy of Holies. Only one guy, he goes in. Sacrifice that big old bull to cover your sin, to cover, cover the sin of your family. And you go in here to the Holy of Holies, and there, there's the Ark of the Covenant, and you, 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 you sprinkle that there, and you're doing mediation. Now in Scripture, God told, uh, through the prophet Moses, to Erharon, you don't, you don't go in there anytime you want. You know, your friends come to town, you're like, oh man, you guys got to see the Ark of the Covenant. It's bomb in there. <laughs> no, no, you don't go in there 
only on Yom Kippur. And the prophet Moses told Aharon, you go in there, you, you'll die, man. That's a sacred space. It's believed that the Holy of Holies was like a porthole from the heavens to the earth. There's a sense in which heaven touches there. You're like going in heaven in a sense. God's in heaven and God's holy and God can't have wickedness in his place. You, you've got to wash yourself. Something has to die. Because again, the wages of sin is death. And so there's, there's this picture of death. And, and you've got to put on those garments. You can't just come up in here wearing anything. And, and, and you know, we know, you know, you, you get dressed up when you go to something special. You know? I showed you the picture of, of, of when we went to Fleming's. You know, you say, hey, guys got dressed up. Mike Dolan came in his Dickies and a T-shirt, but, you know, those were new Dickies, so he got dressed up. It was a clean T-shirt. He got dressed. You get dressed up when you go in there. And then at Haron, there's the, the killing of the bull, but at Haron takes two goats and, and, and kills a goat, kills one of the two goats. And, and the death of that goat is, is to be a picture of atonement for the sins of the people of Israel, God's people. And then, and then I said there's two goats, and, and then the other goat is, is, is taken, and the other goat is treated as what we call a scapegoat. That's where that word comes from when we talk about a scapegoat. And, and, and the, scape, the scapegoat is then given by Eharon to a priestly attendant who takes that scapegoat outside of the city, and their hands are placed on the head of that goat as a picture of mediation of the, the guilt talk about being caught red-handed, of the guilt that's on our hands is placed on the head of that goat, and then the goat is released outside of the holy city into the wilderness as a picture of sin being carried out of the community, sin being brought away. So the Kohanim, the priest, the Kohen Gadol, the high priest who succeeds Echaron, they're a big deal for the, for the Jewish community. Keep in mind, Jesus has come. Keep in mind the illustration I gave you. When the tomahawk comes, you're not looking at the menu, you're chowing down. Jesus has come. All these things that it's pointing to now change for a Jewish person who grew up with this. You've been growing up, going to the Shalash Relogim. You've been going up, the, the temple special. You've been doing this your whole life. And now the fulfillment has come. You're going to have to process that. You know, what does that mean? What does that look like? And here, Hebrews 10 is processing that. Let, let, let me tell you what it looks like. Okay, the priests, yeah, big deal, but nothing is happening. Those are just all symbols. Those are just all pictures, right? If, 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 if you had to go on a trip and you were away from your family for a month and, and, and you had a little picture with you the whole time just looking at them, oh, I miss them. And then you get home, right? And, and they greet you at the airport. You're not like, hang on, you guys. I gotta look at this picture some more. You guys, this picture. No, no, you, you're with them. They're there. These pictures have been fulfilled. The sacrifice has come. The priests, they're good. They're good. The law, good, good. The temple, good. But there's something better that has happened. Verse 12, but he, having offered one sacrifice for the sins of all time. See, they're doing it all day, every day. We've got the holidays coming. We've got some extra sacrifice. They, they just keep doing it, doing it, and it's doing nothing. They just keep doing it, doing, doing nothing. And here comes this priest, and he does it once one and done one and done and one it's it's in and this priest he's different from Aharon. in fact in the book of hebrews and just before this i told you this section of seven through ten is he's the better priest or whatever from six to seven in that section the author talks about how jesus is better than Aharon because he doesn't come through the line of Aharon. he comes through the line of this other priest called melchizedek and Melchizedek, oh, he's this mysterious priest that appears in the book of Genesis, and there's all sorts of things that we could talk about in Melchizedek and Genesis and, you know, what's going on there. But suffice it to say, just really quickly, in, in, in the Hebrew of Genesis, Melchizedek is called uh, uh, Melchizedek, which means the king, the Malik is the king, Tzedek is righteousness, he's the king of righteousness. He's not just a priest, he's a king. 
And, and his priesthood, in the Hebrew text, he's the priest of El Elyon, which is the, the Most High God. This phrase is used in the, in the book of Psalms and Scripture to speak of the God of Israel. He's a priest. He's a king. That sounds like someone, uh, you know, it sounds kind of like Jesus, right? Oh, this is kind of cool. In Hebrews chapter 7, just before this, Psalm 110 is being used, and it talks about you are a priest forever. You, you are in the order of Melchizedek. And then here in chapter 10, he's, he's going, hey, look, he's the greater priest. He's the greater priest. He comes through Melchizedek. Even Abram came to Melchizedek. And, and Psalm 110, just as it's used in Hebrews 7, it's being used here in Hebrews chapter 10 where we are. And around the time of Jesus, uh, Jewish people were really fascinated with the figure of Melchizedek. You've heard about the Dead Sea Scrolls in Qumran. Oh, they say all kinds of interesting stuff about Melchizedek. You've heard about uh, other extra-biblical Jewish writings like Enoch. Oh, second Enoch says all kinds of cool stuff about Melchizedek. I'm not going to take you there, but suffice it to say, the readers of this in the first century had all kinds of ideas about, they were really excited about Melchizedek. And so when he says, Yeshua is from Melchizedek, they were like, oh, wow. Okay, so yeah, you're right, he's better. Verse 12, he offers a sacrifice once for all sins for all time. And then verse 12, he sits down at the right hand of God. Now, sitting down is what you do when you're done. When the priest is done with the sacrifice, he sits down. And he's sitting down not in any old chair. He's sitting down not in any old chair. He's sitting down not in any old flesh. He's not any old God. He's the eternal Son, one with the Father and Spirit. Not just any old flesh, Jewish flesh. Not just any old chair. The chair that is in reference here is the right hand of the Father in heaven. This is the language of ascension. He, go, he goes up into the heavens. He sits down. He died. Done. He rose up. The check didn't bounce. The Venmo went through. It's in your account. It's paid for. The payment is done. Boom. He goes into the heavens and he sits down at the right hand of the Father. The work is done. But it's not done. He's sitting down at the right hand of the Father now, he, now I'm, I'm going to say this colloquially, okay? Catching his breath. But we know that he's omnipotent, so he doesn't have to catch his breath. But I say he's catching his breath because he's coming back. He's going to get off of the right hand of the Father, and he's going to come back down here. And so before he ascended, he gathered the discouraged and the divided and the darkened, and he opened their eyes and made them one and said, you go, you make disciples, and I'll come back and get you. I'll be, up, I'll, be up, I'll be up in the green pastures. I'm leaving you in the dark valley. I'm going to come and I'm going to get you. Verse 13, look at the text. After talking about him sitting down, it says, waiting from the time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. That's the language of his return. In his first coming, he came to die. He came to be murdered and battered and ripped apart. And he cried out, he cried out while he was being spat upon and beaten. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Forgive them. He came in his first coming to suffer and to die. That he might give life and make that payment. In his second coming, he comes to judge sin. And it's over. It's not going to be a battle. It's, I mean, it's, it's, there is the battle of Armageddon. But, but you know, it's not, it's, there's, there's not going to be a big fight. The devil, the kingdom of darkness, sin. Like, it, it's going to be over. He's going to end it. There's not going to be a back and forth like, oh, dang, look at what the devil, oh, the devil, oh, 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 no, 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 the angels. No, there's, there's not going to be a struggle in this. It's not going to be locks and dip set or whatever. There's, it's going to be over. Some of you are like, I have no idea. That's fine. I throw in stuff. So it's going to be over. It's going to be over. Google it later. So when he returns, it's going to be done. The footstool of his feet, his enemies will be at when he returns. In fact, last week, uh, we, we had a, a full meal. Pastor Tony preached on the return. Gave us a PowerPoint and a diagram and everything with all of it in there. Like, he, he's coming back. And the point of this is to remind us, like, there's a choice to stand before God when he comes on our terms or to come on his terms now so that when he comes... We're on the right side of this. You see, you, you don't want to stand before God when he comes and, 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 and do so on your terms. You don't want to die now and do so on your terms, on your merits, and stand before him in the heavens. No, 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 I, I want to stand before God 
on the merit of the sacrifice that he has given for me. Because it's perfect. It's perfect. For by the one offering, verse 14, he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. Did you hear that? Those who are in Christ have been made perfect by his righteousness. Perfect by his perfections. Perfections, of course, which are intrinsic to his divine nature. Perfections as well in his humanity that he perfected. He's God and man in one person. Earlier in Hebrews, let me put it in front of you, in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 8, 9, and 10, look at this. He was the, although he was the Son, he's God, he's the eternal Son, one with the Father and the Spirit. Although he was the Son, he learned obedience from the all things that he suffered. Verse 9, Hebrews 5, having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of everlasting salvation. In his humanity, he learned perfection. In his deity, of course, he's perfect. Verse 10, being designated by God as the high priest according to the order of, I was talking about a moment ago, Melchizedek. So see, Jesus' solidarity with humanity. He's fully human. Soul, body, spirit, mind, emotions, all of it, albeit without sin. He learns obedience in his humanity in the incarnation. In his human nature, he, he learns. Of course, in his divine nature, he, he can't learn anything. He knows everything. In his human nature, he submits to the law. In his divine nature, of course, he wrote the law. He's untempted. He has one will with the Father and the Spirit. So they, they don't have to submit to anything. They have one will, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. But in his humanity, he has a human will. And that will has to submit to the divine will. God is impeccable. God is impassable. God does not suffer. Behold the man the eternal Son who suffers. And in so doing, in His obedience, in His humanity, He has perfection. We are sons of Adam. Adam is fallen. We are born of Adam. We carry the fallenness. Now comes a son of Adam to boot a son of Abram. He's of the fall. He's of the promise. In one, he dies and he fulfills all. This is the Christ. This is the good news. This is the gospel that, that hopefully you came here today to hear and you knew we would bring it because we do every Sunday. And, and, and if you came here not thinking we would bring it, hopefully at this point you're like, I'm so glad he's talking about this. Isn't this great? There's one who accomplished. There is one who died in our place. There is one who gives everything that we didn't have for us. His name is Jesus. Humanity is in trouble. As I said, sons of Adam. But a second son has come. The second Adam has come. And he offers that sacrifice. And he doesn't leave us bumbling around in the darkness to find the sacrifice ourselves. But he sends the Spirit to open our eyes to see him. And, and, and he works through what I'm doing right now, the proclamation of the gospel. The Spirit then works to open your eyes Next thing you know, you go, by golly, I believe what he's talking about. Yeah, that's new life. Being breathed into the child of Adam, who is a child of death, now is being given new life by the Spirit. Look at Hebrews, where we left off, verse 15. He's going to start talking about the Spirit, just like I'm talking about the Spirit. And the Spirit testifies to us, verse 15. For after saying, this is the covenant, verse 16, that I will make with them. You see the talk of the Spirit the talk uh, here in verse 16, he begins to quote Jeremiah 31, and Jeremiah talks about this new work of the Spirit and the new covenant. So he starts talking about covenant here. The word covenant is a word that means promise, and that brings us to the next point on the outline. Now we have the point of promise. We have the point of, 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 of payment. I gave you prolegomenon, so as we're reading it, it starts, oh, okay, that's the context. Okay, I see that. I see the payment. Now see the promise. The promise is made by the Spirit, the giver of new life, regeneration. Also, the giver of revelation. It's the Spirit who testifies, the Spirit who speaks. And he quotes Jeremiah. The Spirit is quoting Jeremiah. The, the Spirit is quoting the Word to the people. Here's the Word. This is my covenant, verse 16, that I will make uh, with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law into their hearts, and my mind I will write in them, he says. Verse 17, and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now, where there is forgiveness of these things, there is no longer any offering for sin. Now, in the future, the prophet Jeremiah prophesied to Israel that in the future, Israel would be restored. 
That in the future, God would raise up a remnant. He would gather his people on the land and all the promises that we read about, they would all be fulfilled literally. Romans chapter 9 through 11 unpacks the hope of this day. In the book of Revelation, we read about the gathering of the 12 tribes and the 144,000. God's gathering them together and there's this great revival and then God puts his law inside of them. Puts the Torah in their hearts and in their minds. And, 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 and that's a picture to say that of salvation, of forgiveness. You've got it in you now. That's power for life and holiness. It's, it's intimacy. It's in you. And through his word, he inhabits his word. Now his word being placed in them, his presence is in them. We move now from promise to a point of presence. Because of what Jesus has done, God's people can enter into his presence. When you talked about, in the context of Hebrews, in the first century, if you were talking to ancient Jewish people about presence, immediately what would come to mind is the is temple. Well, the temple, that's, the, that's where Yahweh lives. That's the portal of the heavens to the earth. That's where his presence is. That's why it's so special when we go there. That's why we wash ourselves before we go in. You, you wash your hands before a nice meal. You get dressed up for a nice meal. It's, it's special because God's in there. Again, let me give you the, the picture again so you have it in front of you. Um, this, this was Herod's temple at the time of Jesus, so this would have been what uh, the, the ancient readers would have been thinking of, his presence. The temple is a picture of presence, God and man together. The Garden of Eden, that's what it was. God walked through the cool of the garden, the Garden of Eden, humanity and, and God are together. There's presence. With the fall of Adam, we lost that presence. And now presence is being returned to the temple. God is, is dwelling among men. Here, here he is. You know, recall in the fall, stationed outside of paradise of, of Eden. What was stationed outside of Eden when that presence was robbed and, and ruined by sin? Stationed outside of, of Eden were the cherubim, flaming swords on every way to guard the tree of life. In the temple, you have the lampstand. You see the lampstand, the imagery of the tree of life. You have the cherubim. See the cherubim. See where they are. They're inside the Holy of Holies. See the veil that separates these, these sections. Recall what I told you, the, 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 the priest and the warning of Moses to Aharon. You, you don't just walk up in there because death could come. The Kohen Haggadol, the high priest, entering in there. It's serious business. Look at the text of Hebrews, verse 19. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place, you don't have to worry about it not being Yom Kippur. Go in there. You don't have to worry about the cherubim and the flaming swords. Go in there. Go in there. You, you thought the temple was special. You thought that was good. I'm telling you about something that's better. You could go in there. Well, why can't I do that? Verse 19, by the blood of Jesus by a new, verse 20, and living way, which he inaugurated for us through the veil. There's, there's the veil. There's the veil. You see the veil, right? And the veil that's separated. But what does he say the veil is? What was that veil pointing to? His flesh. That's what the text says. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, we can run in there. The house of God, that's the temple. The veil, his flesh, that's the temple. But this time, it's not an animal. It's human blood. It's human blood. And that's why it was done once, because the payment took. The animal blood, the plant life that died, and all that stuff, his is point is something. The blood that is sprinkled on the Ark of the Covenant, a bull, a goat, whatever. No, this is the blood of a man. An innocent man. An innocent man. His blood is on the Ark. You can go in there now. You don't have to worry. Eden is being reversed. The cherubim aren't on the outside. They're on the inside. You, 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 you can go in now. Bible trivia. What's inside of the Ark of the Covenant? Three things. The Torah tablets, Ten Commandments, Aaron's budded rod, and a pot of manna. Those are all reminders of what God had revealed and done for his people. As well, they're reminders of our need for him. The Ten Commandments remind us what we've broken. Aaron's budded rod, rod was a sign to the people that they were unsubmissive to God's leadership and left wandering. The pot, the pot of manna was given as a sign to the people. They, they were grumbling. They were grumbling under God's leadership and God's provision for them. They were grumbling. And here's the beauty. 
those pictures that remind us of our grumbling, our unsubmission, and what we've broken, they're inside the ark. They're covered. They're covered. Our broken commandments, our rod of rebellion, our manna of ungratefulness, it's covered. And on top is his perfect blood. It's paid for. It's covered. I shared with you earlier about our, our special dinner, and Tony said, you know, order whatever, uh, whatever you want. It's paid for. It's covered. He had it covered. We didn't, have, we didn't have to worry that we were going to be washing dishes later or whatever, you know. We, it was covered. It was paid for. Enjoy it. This feast that was prepared for you. So, too, we gather. I'm going to take communion, and then I'll get back to the sermon. We gather, and we enjoy this meal. We owed a debt that we could not pay. The gospel tells us that he, Jesus, paid that debt. And he paid this debt that he himself did not owe. Because of what I just said, we owed a debt that we could not pay. And, and, and he did this not just because he, he you know, wanted to make a payment or whatever. It's, it's not just some, some transaction or whatever, paying it forward or whatever. No, this was the before the foundations of the world, the eternal will of God. This was the plan of the sovereign God to redeem a people for himself. So before we pop this bread in our mouth, look back at the text, verse 22. Let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. What was, what was the veil? What did the text say? It is his flesh. As we eat this, picture that veil dissolving in your mouth. The veil is gone. It's wide open. Run in. Run in. Run to the ark. Run to the place of his presence. Run in. And we run in and we know that we have this confidence that we can run in, that we can come to him, that he will forgive us this free gift that he gives to us. And while it's free for us, as we open the cup, let us remember that it was highly expensive. It was highly expensive. He gave his life. His blood was poured out. As we drink the cup, imagine the blood on the top of the Ark of the Covenant covering our rod of rebellion, our broken commandments, our grumbling and, and our manna and our bread of unrighteousness. We drink the cup. Let's celebrate him. This is a picture. As the sacrifices were pictures in the days of old, this is a picture in this dispensation. The Apostle Paul spoke about this, and he said, we drink this cup, we eat this bread, and in so doing, we proclaim his death until he comes. It's a picture of him coming. Right? When he comes... When the second coming happens, you know, I'm not going to be like, hey, let's have communion. That will be crazy because, like, you're here and then we'll have communion. No, no, no. Like, the bread, the blood is there. <laughs> He's there. These are pictures. He's here. And he comes for his people. That's the final point of the text on your outline. He comes for his people. Let's draw your eyes back at the text. This is what I shared with Noah, and I'll, I'll share it with you guys at our dinner. We read this verse Verse 24, let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our assembling together, as is the habit of some, and encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. As I said, he's going off to college, and there's a tendency to fall out of going to church or whatever, and, and, and I wanted to just charge him, look, this, the people, this is important. This passage though that, that's sort of just a slap on. Hey, make sure you're going to church. But what it's preceded by is all of this, this beauty and temple and fulfillment and Jesus. And then, and then he, at, at the end of it, he comes and he says, you guys need to be together in this, stimulating one another, love and good deeds and action, assembling together. The language in the Greek there, it, it, it's, it's technical. This isn't just any old gathering. This is the church. This togetherness that he's describing here is the togetherness of the church. The church that comes to hear the word, to sing, to read scripture, to have communion. The, the, the church that comes in Hebrews, he tells them later in chapter 13, verse 17, he, he says, hey, look, obey your leaders. Submit to them. They keep a watch over your soul. They'll give an account for this. Let them do this with joy, not with groaning. That would not be an advantage to you. 
He's writing to leaders who are discouraged. He's writing to a congregation that's discouraged. He's writing to them because all those pressures are causing people to walk away and give up and get hurt and all this. He goes, no, 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 come together. Stimulate, love, do good deeds. And all of this is, is ultimately getting at how you use your time. Make sure Sunday's the first day of the week. And so, so the Lord receives the first fruits. We give him Sunday morning because it's the start of the week. And we, we, we give that to him in a culture that is constantly taking time away from us. A culture that's constantly distracting us. A culture with these screens that are just constantly, here, let me ruin your happiness. <laughs> here, this is something else bad. So here, you know. This Christian leader who you otherwise know is a man of God who preaches the gospel. Boo, 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 you know, and I don't I hate him. Let's start canceling each other. Just boom, boom, boom all day. No, no, no. Redeem the time. Ephesians 5.16, Colossians 4.5. Hebrews, here's how you spend your time. Use your time gathering and worship and encouraging each other and talking about Jesus. Dave Chappelle, he's a crass comedian. He's a Sometimes really interesting cultural commentator. He has this morbid joke uh, about being in the room in the, in the front row or close nearby when Steve Jobs introduced the iPhone. You know, and he's telling the story about how he got tickets and he's there and Steve Jobs comes out. He's like, this is going to change your lives. And Dave Chappelle's like, yeah, you know, you know whatever. And, and then his joke goes like this. And I, I, I quote editedly. Uh, and had I had known then how it was going to mess up my life, I would have stabbed him in the chest with my pencil. <laughs> you know, just, you know, hey, this new, you know, the phones, the tablets, the news, the this, the that, the things that are sucking our time all away from this enjoyment and hearing and celebrating, the final point on the outline, the truth of the gospel. That day when he is going to come, he is going to come, our, our high priest. He's ours. God's people. He's perfect. Right? The, the, the word perfect is an adjective. It's a word naming an attribute of a noun, like sweet or red or technical, right? Like sweet is the grape, red is the apple, technical is the argument, perfect is the what? Not me, not you. God. God in the flesh. Perfect flesh, perfect God, perfect priest, perfect sacrifice. Creator, creation, reconciled in his perfect mediation. I'm not offering you a picture of salvation today in my words. I'm proclaiming salvation that you might be saved. I'm offering you freedom from guilt and shame. We all need this. We all need freedom from guilt and shame. We need Freedom not just from those feelings, but those realities. Behold the perfect priest. Come to him and be set free. We're going to sing to him. And before we sing, to close our service with two final songs, before we sing, I'm going to pray. And just as they approached the temple and they were, they were washed before they came to worship, let's come now, let's bow our heads and hearts, and let's seek his washing in our souls. Just bow your head, just... In your heart, just cry out, Lord, forgive me. Ask for his forgiveness today. Lord, forgive me. With your heads bowed, just, just share with him in your, in your heart now. Get it off your chest. Lord, I've done this. Don't carry that weight. I want you to run into the Holy of Holies as you pray. Lord, I've done this. I regret this. I'm carrying this. Let it go. Be set free. Cry out to him. Be set free. Lord, we need you. We need your freedom. We need guilt and shame lifted. Our consciences even have grown cold and seared that we don't even see the things that we need forgiveness of. Oh, Lord, be merciful to us and draw us in repentance now. Lord, I, I thank you that you used this week to draw me into this text as I was thinking about young Noah going off. Lord, in this text that is about a people who were going off, walking away and discouraged and tired and tapping out, 
being confused by things that weren't true. Lord, open our eyes to celebrate the truth here and now. As we come in song, Lord, stir in our hearts things that we're singing. We wouldn't just be doing some kind of religious karaoke in here, Lord, that, that, that these words that we sing, Lord, press them into our hearts. We read of your spirit. We read of this promise of the new covenant, of you taking the, the law and pressing it in. Lord, press the truth into our hearts that the truth would set us free. And Lord, we come now in song to celebrate that who the Son sets free, He has freed indeed. In your name, Jesus, we give thanks. We offer these prayers, and now we offer these songs. In your name, Jesus, to your Father and by the Spirit. Amen.